Um, if you've got a church Bible, it's page 1029. Do you have any spares? No spares. Um, Luke chapter 3. Thanks, Laura. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 3, reading the word of the Lord from verse 21. Yes, we are going to read the genealogy because all of God's word is good and for our instruction. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Judah, the son of Joanan, the son of Phrasa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mothat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Sheth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Thanks very much, Laura, for reading, and great job on all those names. Um, let me add my welcome to Johnny's. My name's Chris Evans, assistant pastor here. Um, why don't I pray for us, uh, pray for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have wonderfully chosen not to hide, but to reveal yourself uh, to us. And we praise you that you do that uh, wonderfully in your word and through your son. And what a precious thing that we get to uh, open up your word now and see your son, uh, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we, uh, we gaze upon him, we would learn more about you, more about your goodness, your grace, and your character. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's great to have rooted in with us um, this morning. Normally, we give you guys uh, a little question to be thinking about um, as we go through. So here's one question for you. What makes Jesus qualified to be our saviour? What makes Jesus qualified to be our saviour? Well, when I was in my mid-teens, um, I watched a, a programme about the lost Elgar piano concerto. I can see from the room, doesn't really ring uh, any bells. Rumour has it, Elgar, who was the, the composer of Land of Hope and Glory, a bit more well-known, he was working on a piece for piano and orchestra, uh, but he never finished it before his death. And so maybe we have a lost masterpiece. But as I watched, we saw a, a, a famous pianist, David Owen Norris, who teaches down in Southampton, and a, a composer called Robert Walker. They'd come to the rescue after months, probably years, trawling through different sketches that Elgar had made. They painstakingly set to work to restore this masterpiece in, in, a, in kind of keeping with Elgar's style so that we might be able to enjoy it today. And that idea of something lost being restored is a powerful one, isn't it? But I guess the question is, does the final version, which uh, you can listen to, this is the CD, have a, have a, I've got it at home, anyone wants to borrow it, does the final version actually fit with the original composer's intention? Would Elgar have loved it if he could have heard it today? Would he have thought, that's exactly what I meant? Or maybe, to put it in more Bible language, does it bear the image of its maker? The philosopher Voltaire said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repeat the favor ever since. And last week, we saw John the Baptist. He was reminding us that essentially, the heart of the human problem is this, that ever since Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve, the image of God in us, which humanity was made to bear and reflect, 
has been distorted because of our rebellion and sin. It's like looking at yourself in one of those circus mirrors. The image of God is all warped. With a mirror, though, you do recognise something of yourself still. No, God's glory, even after the fall, is still there to behold in every human person. The image is there, but it is warped. It is distorted, and we're waiting for it to be restored so that we reflect his image perfectly again. We're waiting for someone to renew, restore our humanity, and, and not just go back to how Adam and Eve were, but to fulfill all of their potential, all that they were commanded to do. Even if you're, you're not a Christian, there is this general sense, isn't there, that humanity is still to reach its full potential. But, but how is how's that going to come about? How is that to be done? Maybe education, uh, maybe merging ourselves with Technology, transhumanism is a, is a big thing, so that we can live forever, kind of uploaded, updated as we need. Maybe the right diet, physical training, genetic modification. But the thing is, just like the Elgar Piano Concerto, we'd be left wondering, has what was lost and all of its potential, has it, has it really been restored? Is it really what the author wanted? And the only way to know that is to look to the God who made humanity and to see how he is going to bring that about. And in today's passage, Luke shows us that it takes no one less than the Son of God to restore that broken image of God in humanity. But what is it about the Son of God that qualifies him uh, to do this? We can see two things that Luke shows us. Uh, firstly, that the Son stands in the place of sinners. Firstly, the son stands in the place of sinners. Have a look at verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. We're following straight on from last week. We're at the River Jordan. Hundreds of people getting baptised. But you can kind of imagine, after 20, 30 minutes of this, watching it, it's getting a little bit repetitive. If any of you have been to a graduation ceremony, you might know the feeling uh, then Jesus comes along, and it just seems like business as usual. But after his baptism, he starts praying. And then we see, verse 21, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And if that wasn't strange enough, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let's pick out three surprises here. Firstly, how often do you hear a voice from the sky? Not very often. But here we see the Father's approval. Normally, throughout the Old Testament, we've seen God speaks to his people through the prophets. And the number of times you hear an audible voice of God are, are very, very few. But it's as if God is stepping out, to, out of heaven to address his son, but he's got the intention of being overheard. He wants everyone else to listen in. We're invited to hear the words of the Father to the Son, a little insight into the life of the triune God. And what does he say? You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this is more than just a nice little family moment here. The Father's voice is recalling two key verses 
that his people would have known about the coming Saviour. Firstly, Psalm 2, verse 7. It says this, He said to me, that is God talking to his son, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now this psalm would have been known as a psalm about God's king coming to rule God's world. And it is at this point, just before Jesus starts his ministry, the father chooses to reference it. He wants them to see this is God's king coming to rule God's world. And the other verse he quotes is Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is one of the songs about the servant of the Lord who's going to save his people. Listen to how he's described in Isaiah 41. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Just like the Father's words, with whom I am well pleased. As everyone hears the Father's voice coming from heaven, it's like a big signpost. Jesus is none other than God's king, the one called God's son in Psalm 2. He's none other than God's servant from Isaiah 42 who's going to bring salvation. But there's a second surprise. As well as the Father's approval, the voice from heaven, the Spirit descends like a dove. Now, guess what the next bit of Isaiah 42 verse 1 says? It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. That's what's happening. Throughout the Old Testament, various people were given the Spirit to accomplish particular tasks for the Lord. Various leaders, Moses, Joshua, David, some of the judges, some of the temple builders. And in one sense, Jesus is no different. He's a, 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 a leader with a particular mission, so it's no surprise that he's given God's Spirit. But if we've been reading Luke, we know that Jesus is different. He is the man of the Spirit par excellence. The Spirit was involved in his conception and in revealing him to Simeon at the temple, and the Spirit is going to equip him to face temptation and lead him into the wilderness. Everything Jesus will do will be in the power of the Spirit. God wants everyone to know who Jesus is, and so he makes it visibly and audibly obvious. These first two surprises, they tell us something that we must never lose sight of. I wonder, when you think of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it can maybe be easy to think Jesus is the one who does all of the saving work, whilst the Father and the Spirit, they just kind of watch with their feet up. The Spirit gets on with stuff once we get to kind of acts, and, and the Father's doing things beforehand. No, but Jesus' baptism here is a wonderful reminder, isn't it? You can't divide the triune God like that. The work of salvation, just like any work of God, is a work of Father, Son, and Spirit, all together, inseparably, working out their one divine will. The Father sends the Son, the Son is sent and takes on flesh and lives and dies and rises again, all in the power of the Spirit. They work together. We must never separate them. So two surprises, a voice from heaven, the spirit descending like a dove, but it's easy to overlook the third surprise, which is the fact that Jesus gets baptised at all. Now, we saw last week people were getting baptised as a sign of repentance, a sign that they needed to be forgiven. But 
from the rest of this passage, uh, we've already seen, we've got a good idea, Jesus isn't getting baptized because he needs to turn from his own sin or be forgiven of anything. No, Jesus is getting baptized as a picture of all that he's going to do in our place. A sign that he is identifying with us. As the son of God, he comes to stand in the place of sinners. To live the life they couldn't live, to face the wrath of God that they deserve. And so he gets baptized as a picture of that for us. And the question is, will we let him stand in our place? Will we let him stand in our place? But the thing is, you can't just pick anyone to stand in your place, can you? If you go and watch a, a football match and a player gets injured, uh, then they don't just kind of open it up to the whole stadium. Hey, we've got a shirt. Who wants, to, who wants to step in? Anyone think they're particularly good at defending or being in goal? No, you, you kind of have a whole line of substitutes ready who are trained. And you've probably got amongst them just one or two who are your particular subs for that person. They, they know how to play the position. They understand the match ahead. They've maybe done research on the team that they're facing. You need someone qualified for the job. Now, the spot for saving humanity isn't open to anybody. For Jesus to be qualified, he must stand in the place of sinners and yet not sin himself. He must be able to bear the image of God that he will then restore in us. Which is why the next episode is so vital in the wilderness. And that's our our second point, the second thing we see that Jesus is qualified to be our saviour, that the son stands where Adam fell. But just before we get to the temptation, Luke thinks it's important that we know some family history. I'm sure all of you will have noticed as we read. Now, he's not the only one to put a genealogy in his gospel. Matthew has one too, right at the beginning. But Luke puts his here, between the baptism and the wilderness temptations. And I think he does it for a reason. Matthew, he starts from Abraham and he moves forward, coming up to present day. But Luke, he goes backwards. Did you spot? Son of, son of son of so-and-so, son, gradually, I mean, it's quite long. You're thinking, when's this going to end? And then you get to the end, backwards, drawing our attention to who the last person on the list is. We go through Abraham, and we go further back, all the way back to the son of Adam, and then God himself. Luke wants us, I think, to be comparing Adam and Jesus when we get to what follows. And it does ring true, doesn't it? Have a look at verse one and two. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Jesus is described as full of the Spirit. Well, Adam was filled with the breath of God when he was made. There's references to to food and eating here. Remember in the garden? What what are they tempted to do? It is to, to eat. And here we get one of the few appearances of the devil speaking 
personally in Scripture. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? We're supposed to think, what happened when Jesus' oldest ancestor was tempted back in Genesis 3? Well, because of him, all humanity now stands guilty before God, facing his condemnation. Because of him, God's image in us has been distorted and warped. But the future of a new humanity depends on a new Adam, one who can stand where he fell. But unlike Adam, we see here Jesus is in a position of unbelievable intensity. Did you spot verse 2? Jesus, he faces 40 days of temptation from the devil. And then we get these temptations at the end. And he faces 40 days of no eating. Adam, he faces temptation in a lush garden with the freedom to eat anything he likes except from one tree. He isn't tired, he isn't weak, he isn't hungry. But Jesus, he is near starving. He is at the limit of what a human body can bear, hunger and exhaustion. And just before we look at the temptations, it's worth noticing this contrast. It shows us how careful we should be about blaming our sin on our circumstances and our surroundings. So humanly speaking, if we were going to let either of these people off the hook for sinning, we should, we should never do that, but if we were going to understand why they sinned, well, it would be Jesus, wouldn't it? He's tired, he's weak, he's hungry, he's got nothing left in him. And we'd say, well, Adam, he has every reason not to because he's surrounded by abundance. But sin doesn't come from outside pressures. It comes from our inside heart's response to what is going on around us. It's easy to blame lashing out on, in, in kind of anger on, on just being tired, isn't it? Or being grumpy because we're really hungry. But if we excuse ourselves from sinning because we say our circumstances have conspired against us, then the devil has already won the first round. He's put us a step away from our own responsibility. We start blaming it on something else. Jesus and Adam, the contrast shows us sin comes from the inside, not from the outside. Jesus would rather suffer than sin, but Adam would rather sin than be uncomfortable. That's a challenge, isn't it? If we want to grow in godliness, it's our hearts that need addressing most, not our surroundings. Though, of course, that can be wise as well. But under all this intensity, is it going to be too much? Will Jesus stand where Adam falls? Let's go through them. The first temptation is about Jesus' needs being met. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Now, when our needs aren't met, they tend to kind of dictate and control our behavior, don't they? If you get really thirsty, well, I, I get up and I go and have a drink. If I'm cold and shivering, well, I try and warm up. I put some extra layers on or go and turn the, the heating on. If I'm in pain, I will seek a doctor. Jesus' stomach, it hasn't processed food for 40 days. If that is not a need that is going to control you, then I don't know what is. And so Satan challenges him, put your needs first. You can kind of imagine the train of thought that the devil is going for. 
He's saying, God the Father just said that he loves you. God the Father just said that he's well pleased with you, that he's withholding food from you that you need. Shouldn't you just step in, do something about it? You're the son of God after all. If water can be turned into wine, then a stone can be turned into some bread. It reminds us of Eden, doesn't it? When the devil suggests that God is withholding something that they need. When he lies and makes it sound that God won't provide for them. So will Jesus stand where Adam fell? The devil says a stone to bread miracle will prove he's the son of God. But Jesus knows that the opposite is true. Because the devil hasn't understood what being the son of God really means. Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. And it's essential that he lives a fully human life, which means human limits, weaknesses, and human needs. Turning a stone into some bread to satisfy that need would be to use his divinity to undermine the fullness of his humanity. It would kind of be like cheating, like going to the cross and temporarily kind of cutting off his nerve endings so that he wouldn't feel any pain. But one of the reasons Jesus is qualified to bring salvation is that he lived a fully human life, and therefore he can fully represent us to God and eventually die for us. Which is why when he's given this easy way out, what does he do? Well, verse 4, he answers, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, and the verse goes on on the screen, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, that is how man lives. It's talking about Israel in the wilderness, learning that, that God's daily decision to provide was behind every meal that they ate. And so Jesus is tempted to kind of put his need in the driving seat, but he puts it in God's hands. He says, I'm trusting it to the Lord his daily decision. Now, we live in a time, don't we, where we can have our needs met quicker than ever before. Amazon Prime, Just Eat, Deliveroo, everything is so instantly available that genuine needs get confused with things that would just be quite nice to have. When we feel that our needs are not being met by the Lord, what is our response? Do we let them control us? Or are there times that we could be quicker to pray, give us today our daily bread? Let's look at the second temptation. The second one is about ruling the world at the cost of his soul. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus is given a bit of an either or here. Rule the entire world, receive all the glory and splendor, or worship your father as God. But notice Satan's craftiness. He frames it as an either-or. But just like back in the garden, he's playing fast and loose with the words of God. Because the Son of God has actually already been promised all authority and all glory will be given to him by the Father. Remember Psalm 2, the one that was spoken at the baptism? Well, the next verse goes something like this. I will make the nations your inheritance 
the ends of the earth your possession. The son's going to get everything. It's already been promised. Or in Daniel 7 verse 14, we see the same thing. This is now looking back to when that's going to happen. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All authority and glory, they've already been promised to the Son. So the question here isn't whether Jesus will rule the world, but on whose terms? Now, at the cost of worshipping the devil, or later? And if he chooses later, it will be at the cost of great personal suffering, of death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God. But it will be worshipping the Father, saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now honestly, which one of those two sounds better? The Sunday school answer is obvious, but when we examine our hearts in, a, in this way, something that's immediate and painless feels much more appealing, doesn't it? Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are given a, a similar option. Do they want to live in God's world on his terms or on their terms, following Satan's advice, putting themselves first on their time scale? So will Jesus stand where they fell? Well, verse 8, it is written, Jesus says, Worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. It's extraordinary. Even at the cost of his life, he chooses to worship his heavenly father. He will not skip going to the cross. He will not rule as one who will not first suffer for his people. And indeed, that means all the glory that he receives later, in a sense, is greater because of that choice. And he will not offer Satan worship that only God is worthy of. Elsewhere, Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? I wonder if we find ourselves in situations where maybe we might gain some status or glory, but actually the cost is worshipping something else other than the Lord. Worshipping our own status maybe trampling on somebody else's achievement, compromising on our ethics? How tempting is it sometimes to want to live according to our programme and our timings instead of the Lord's, especially when his feels very uncomfortable? Praise the Lord that Jesus stands where Adam fell. Well, the third and last temptation is about testing God or trusting God. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place that he would one day walk towards and die on a cross. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now Satan's logic is this. Since you're the son of God and the father loves you, then if you jump, of course he'll rescue you. But would Jesus really be expressing faith 
if he jumped off this great height. Imagine him jumping, and then on the way down, we hear these distant words, I believe in Psalm 91, and who knows what happens next. Is that really trusting the Lord? Of course not. That would be folly, wouldn't it? It's not trusting God, but testing God. It's asking for proof when Jesus already has God's word. The devil is manipulating things and trying to get Jesus to force God's hand. Again, reminds us of the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Satan suggested then that that they wouldn't die if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He kind of sows this seed of doubts, doubt God's word. And that seed of doubt bears fruit in putting God to the test. And they do. They test away. They decide, well, we will eat. And to their peril, they're sent out of the garden, away from the Lord and towards their grave. But will Jesus stand where Adam fell? Will he test or will he trust? Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord God to the test. Again, each time, do you notice, he quotes God's word back to Satan. What a splendid thing to do. What a great example for us. He lets God's truth fight Satan's lies. Whatever Jesus is going through, he clings on to those words the Father has said to him, that that he is the Father's son. He is beloved. He is the one that the Father is pleased with. And so he will trust his Father. Jesus can face even the agony of the cross because of the Father's eternal plan and his eternal love. He doesn't have to put God to the test because he's got God's word so deeply in his heart. Now, how easy is it for us to put God to the test when we're kind of confused about something that's, that's going on in life? Maybe we say, Lord, I will offer you more of my life if you do this or if you bless me in a particular way or you take this away. It's easy to do that, isn't it? Rather than look at his words and looking at the blessings that we already have. I wonder if there are passages from Scripture that we could store in our hearts, just like the Lord Jesus did for such moments. Moments where those eternal truths could inform those momentary temptations. Well, three temptations, three temptations to fall like Adam, but three times Jesus stands. But I wonder if, as we've kind of read of Jesus persevering through temptation, I wonder if maybe some of us, I I speak for myself, we can feel a bit small in comparison, can't we? We read of these temptations and we think, but I'm just so weak and so sinful. (laughs) can be discouraged at how easily we give in, how easily we put our needs first, how we live according to our timings and programs, our comfort, how we often test instead of trust. And we think, yes, that, that mirror image just feels so distorted. But in a sense, if that's how we feel, that's okay. That is, that is the, the point of this whole episode, is that we need someone who will not and who could not sin. Someone who looks in the mirror and reflects God's image and character with crystal clarity. We need the son who stands where Adam fell. And if we trust in him then he is ours. If we trust in Jesus this morning, we have this new Adam who will bring a new humanity, not just out there, but in here. 
who will lead us to a day where one day all temptation will be gone. When we will appreciate all of our needs being met, when all the glory and authority will go to the Son because of his suffering service, where we will never feel a desire to test him again because of the wonder of his faithfulness. It's going to be there for all to see, that lamb on the throne bearing the marks of obedience on his hands and sides. On that day, when we all look in the mirror, we'll see his image reflected back to us more and more perfectly as we go from one degree of glory to another. And if you want to experience that new humanity today, you can ask the Lord Jesus to stand in your place. You can ask the Lord for forgiveness and commit yourself to living under his good rule. We can know the joy of being restored to the life we were made to live. We can ask him to stand in our place because he stood where Adam fell and he continued to stand even as he died on the cross. Let's take a moment of quiet and reflect on the goodness of that. going to read two verses just for us as we reflect. Romans 5, verse 18. Just as one trespass, that's Adam's, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the Lord Jesus' death, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Gracious Father, we praise you for your gift of the Lord Jesus. We praise you that he is the true, the better Adam. We praise you for his obedience. We praise you for the the way he withstood temptation, the way he used your truth and models a faithful life to us. But he is not only a model, Father. We thank you that in living his faithful life, he stands in our place, that we might be counted righteous before you. And being secure, we might then with your help, by the help of your spirit, begin to seek to imitate him. Lord, we pray that you would be helping us to reflect your image day by day. Lord, we know we will not do it perfectly, but we pray that in your kindness that we would do it better and better until that day when, by your grace, the work that you are doing in us is made one day complete. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.